When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This podcast is brought to you by bellacatering.com.au. Guys, as we are clamping down in Australia, particularly on even harsher quarantine zones, the international border lockdown has happened, the local state border lockdown has happened, and COVID-19 is just not slowing down fast enough. So catering companies like Bella Catering have flipped into home delivery. If you guys go to bellacatering.com.au, you can find an insane array of beautiful home-cooked meals that can be delivered to your door. They are still an essential service. Why go out and brave shopping centers with absolute crazy people who want to sneeze coronavirus right into your face? Why not just stay online and order delicious catering from bellacatering.com.au? Glenn, Maria, the team, they're absolutely fantastic. Get onto their website right now. I definitely highly recommend the look of the butter chicken and the individualized $4 cheesecakes. Do it right now. You have to. And now, onto the show. At about the same time, she said, I noticed a book on Chappaquiddick on his desk, so I asked about that. He was doing investigative work on that case too, on Kennedy. They weren't willing. They never gave me a whole lot of information. Who told her that Hunt was investigating Kennedy? Another secretary in Colson's office. Then she had seen papers and books on Hunt's desk dealing with Senator Kennedy and the automobile accident at Chappaquiddick. She remembered that one was a paperback, something simple like Kennedy and Chappaquiddick. Some of the material had been checked out from the White House Library, she thought. And one of Colson's aides, she couldn't remember which one, had also told her Hunt was investigating Kennedy. Was verified up the line, she added. Bernstein called the White House and asked for a librarian. He was put through to Jane F. Schlesinger, an assistant librarian, identifying himself as a reporter. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. Joining me, well... You know, it's pretty highfalutin times when you're talking to the principal lecturer in contemporary screen media from the University of Brighton. But I feel like we're slightly on an even keel because by some strange osmosis of the universe, our both of our undergraduate sort of uh, thesis that brought us into sort of higher levels of academia are almost exactly the damn same thing and maybe share like 95 out of 100 bibliography items i would imagine um he is also the host of an incredible resource the cinematologist podcast um that's building quite an amazing little community in the uk and around the world um but also you know he's an absolutely ultra uber fan of all the president's men so it's with my distinct uh, pleasure to welcome daria linaris to the podcast. Daria, welcome so much to, uh, for coming onto the show. Thank you so much. No problem at all, Blake. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I feel like my uh, my title that you just read out there is more words than it is actual status. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, it's great to talk to you, you know, on this show about this film and considering when we had our last little chat 
you know, a little bit more discussion of our shared, you know, history and uh, interests that come from our educational background and then into film, obviously. I'm really looking forward to it. So here we are. We're at the we're at the 28th minute of Alan J. Pakula's 1976 masterpiece, All the President's Men. And we're here as there's a bit of, uh, what would you like to call it? We could like to call it some misdirection and the jittery, pulsating personality that is Dustin Hoffman's Bernstein is exceptionally happy. He seems to have caught someone out. So he, there's nothing more than Hoffman's Bernstein loves than having someone on the back foot, on the back pedal, like trying to say something and have withdrawn it. And we get him now with a very measured presence of Woodward doing that. But as we record, and this doesn't happen often, it hasn't happened often really in one heat minute. I didn't like to say the date because as part of when I was recording the show, there would always be, you know, those occasions. And I'm sure that Dario has the same thing on his podcast where you're talking to someone long time in the, you know, talking to someone right now for a long time in the future. But I just can't help but go like... In 20 years' time, people are maybe going to ask where you were on in Australia the 12th of March, but in the 11th of March, 2020, around the world. Um, and, and so today is, in fact, the day. Today is, in fact, that day, 11th of March, or as we're talking, it's the 12th. Um, and it's, yeah. it's a day that is rippling around the world as the day that America shut its borders to Europe uh, or announced that it would. It's the day that Tom Hanks was diagnosed with the coronavirus and in on the Gold Coast, no less, the seedy, soiled Gold Coast, which is Australia's answer to Miami Beach, just in case you don't know, or the UK, just like think of somewhere skeezy and disgusting. That's the Gold Coast. Lots of guys with sleeve tats, lots of shaved heads, lots of drug dealing bikers. <laughs> like that's where Tom Hanks is right now. America's dad is hanging out with our bikies and really overly tanned fake wow. boobed messes on the Gold Coast hiding from, you know, the coronavirus right now and recovering from, I should say. So it's a, just a strange yes. thing. We're, 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 I feel like in this, sometimes you look at all the president's men and you're like, this was a moment in history. I wonder if I would, I know, I wonder if I had known I was going through a moment in history as it was happening is a question that often comes up for me. So when I watch this minute now and I'm talking to you, I'm like, man, we're going through a moment. Like, I think I'm aware of it. I'm, yeah. I'm deeply aware. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's eight o'clock where you are. So you've had a, I mean, it's funny how things drop, you know, and it's the, it's the time machine aspect or the, the spatial difference of, of being in different parts of the world and how that has a time machine effect. And now we've got the, the time machine effect of the podcast as well, because <laughs> yes. obviously this is coming out. But it is literally sort of 9 a.m. here um, and I've just woken up and turned on the news. And, yeah, it's it seems to be this could be one of those days where things change. And I think in... Interestingly, I think in liberal democracies, and particularly in the UK, we have this sensibility of, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't affect us. This is something that happens to other people. But just sort of reading the article and how this is, you know, this is going to cut across class. This is going to cut across everything. Yes. You know, Tom Hanks has got it, as you said. And it's, but it's interesting, you know, we were just talking before we came on about the difference in responses to different countries. And yeah, Trump has shut down now this travel to to america from europe but not the uk but you know just on the on the differences in the way that it's responded to in terms of um, medical response so in in australia and uk you know if you're going to get a test it's free 
over there for if you're not insured, it's 1600 quid to get a test. So people are going to be making money on this in America. It's yeah, it's an, it's we're in a kind of very, very strange times. It is. It is. very. It's like it's the deeply strangest day. And so, you know, I think maybe it's like a pod. It's, it's definitely this podcast first, but like, I, I don't know about you, Dario. Occasionally, and I never mentioned on a podcast, but I feel like you're a fellow podcaster. So this is the actual the right time. I I've been doing that stupid carnivore diet. I'm just going to call it what it is because I heard about it on another okay. great podcast, The Joe Rogan Experience. I thought, I'm going to give it a try. And so I thought, well, at the beginning of March, I'll do that. My friends have all, you know, a lot of my friends have gone plant-based. I've gone the complete opposite. Um, no uh, um, uh, environmental consciousness from my decision, purely a cognitive function and energy decision uh, with a full life. And one of my decisions was, uh, I'll give up booze as well. Why not? Why not? Why not? Okay. Why not give up booze? And today, between nine a.m. and about twelve, that decision was like, "Yeah, the booze is coming back. Yeah. I can still stick to the meat. Yeah. I won't eat any carbs or vegetables." Well, you can call or... it, but, <laughs> but you the can booze... call it medicinal now, can't you? Especially gin. Gin. You know what I mean? Just swamp yourself in that, and it'll give you a bit of protection. Hopefully, <laughs> it's just one of those. Yeah, it's a really. It's a really strange time. So it's it's you know uh, so for folks listening as the day that this is dropped, I hope that you're taking care and and um, you know it's a we don't know the full effects of it and unfortunately it is like attacking people who are deeply vulnerable, um, you know elderly people, people with respiratory issues, people potentially who are obese, people potentially who've got um, blood pressure issues. You know if you've got underlying medical issues that make you more vulnerable to things like people who contract when they contract pneumonia that basically says that if you're going to get the coronavirus which a whole swathe of the population is definitely going to get like our, our medical examiner in new south wales um she she believed today she announced that uh, she thinks that 1.5 million of the 6 million people that are in the greater sydney area are going to get it and therefore if you're wow. looking at like a 3.4 3.6 to 3.4 percent or whatever it is death rate then that that is significant so yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just one of those things. The world is going to change. It's going to be those times. It's going to be a very strange year. Um, and I know there are a lot of people that were like clawing with every part of themselves to get out of 2019 alive and thought 2020 is the year. And it has just been cat like a, just this cavalcade of strangeness. And in Australia, particularly we had the bushfires that were completely cut off from our summer. You know, a lot of people are affected. Now there's a lot of people who are isolated without, you know, still without home, some without power, some with, you know, that have had to lose their jobs and all this sort of stuff. And then the coronavirus comes in and these like people that are drastically affected, we're going to spend the rest of the year supporting are all kind of now hung out to dry. It's this really, it's an insane time and it's going to be an insane time around the yeah. world. So I just felt like we would be neglecting the, the ethos of these journalists if we didn't mention that right yeah. at the top of the show in case that yeah, reflects I'll tell you it. What the- Sorry, go. Ahead. Sorry, no. I was just going to say. I think that the the um, I think that the uh, the climate crisis needs coronavirus. The coronavirus. Sorry, the coronavirus's PR. Yes, it does. Because you know, <laughs> I think that the, the way that this has sort of been reacted to, and the way that scientists are being listened to, you know, and I mean, yeah, you could count Trump apart from ev- you know, everything <laughs> as always, but yeah, just, we had the budget yesterday and, um, the, there was a sort of blank check written in terms of whatever the NHS needs. And it's just, it seems that, that, that politics has kind of gone out the window a little bit in terms of, yeah, we are going to respond to this. And it's just amazing. The difference 
in terms of the arguments we have over the climate crisis. Yeah, I, th- I just think it's about what's more immediate, right? And it's it's it takes some- yeah. it's so strange that it takes something like that to do it. And in Australia, the client, you know, after years of conservative governments in Australia just completely ignoring climate change and climate crisis. And there was a whole swathe of, you know, protests and whatnot that went ahead around the time of the bushfires. And then obviously all the bushfires happened and there was all the scientists that were sort of out there saying, you know, you've literally ignored climate science. You've literally ignored the conservation efforts of, you know, your rural fire services and their recommendations to backburn, even though it was a higher risk to backburn, to reduce the overall risk when the temperatures got too much and all that sort of stuff. So I don't think it's impossible. I just think it's like, you know, it's, it's that kind of collective myopia. Maybe it's even relates to this project for me. Like I, I have this myopic view of something that I have to unpack and understand and often come back to mm. after many years of it being released to reflect on. And I just think that some, a lot of people don't have the energy for multiple crises to deal with them at once. They're hoping that there are great people that are involved and they're hoping that people like their governments have the capacity to plan and put things in place. But I just genuinely don't think they do like that, you know, and, and also if, if we're not talking about it, people don't care. So when people are starting yeah. to literally die and especially people who are older and yeah. smoke and, uh, have respiratory issues, which is a lot of men and and a lot of men in political power potentially susceptible to the worst of this thing. It's I think it's like it's a massive wake up call for everyone because it's like there are deathly consequences to it, and um, stopping it spread and yeah. inoculating and all that is so important. Mm, yeah, the immediacy is definitely is definitely the thing. Um, yeah, I'm just and, and reiterate. I mean, it's interesting how when this goes out, it's probably what was it going to be? Six weeks ago is going to be. It's probably it's probably going to be a few weeks. Yeah, like yeah. I'm gonna I'm actually going to increase yeah. the run of uh, the episode. So this might be like a this might be in about ten days after it's recorded, or maybe like by the end of March. So mm. we're recording that. So yeah, it's it's going to be about three weeks later. So I wonder what's going on between. Fuck. I wonder what's gone on in the, in that time period. We could be hey, we're speaking. You know, we're, we're now addressing you. We're now addressing you in the future, and we hope that Jesus, we hope that something is 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 being handled. So, what we're going to do is we're going to stop this eleven minute uh, tete a tete between my extremely talented and knowledgeable guest, and stop talking about things like coronavirus and bring it back to what is one of his uh, favourite and formative films and uh, uh, self-evident me, the host of All the President's Minutes, one of my deeply favourite films, to talk about just a great turning point moment in in this wonderful paranoia thriller because, you know, uh, there are the tinfoil hatters out there even in the coronavirus right now. So let's have a look at, uh, you know, why people maybe scratch that itch for a bit of tinfoil hat work. So uh, let's have a look at it now. You guys are going to listen along and then Dario and I are going to come back and unpack it. And then she comes back and says, I don't even know Woodward. Mr. Woodward, Ken Clausen calling back. I've just talked with the librarian. Yes, sir. And she denies that the conversation with Mr. Bernstein ever took place. And she I'm said sorry. She referred Excuse to me, sir. I'm sorry. You say she denies even knowing about the conversation taking place? That's right. Uh, she said someone did call her asking about Mr. Hunt, but all she did was refer him to the press office, and she denies that any other Total conversation bullshit. took place. Uh, I hope that's been of some help to you. Thank you. Uh-huh. Got to get something on paper. Library Congress. Mona? Excuse me. Mona, could you take any calls? Where my notes? I get any calls. I don't know. 
there it is, the 28th wow. minute. It is a great, a great little minute for a lot of reasons. I, 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 my yeah. favorite, my favorite element before I let you dive in, my favorite element is later on in the film, there's a couple of scenes where these guys are frantically, manically taking notes and people are downloading information that is huge scoops in the story. And later on in the film as part of the technique of each guy learning each other's lines so they could say them. Um, Woodward is like great chorus to Bernstein's, like he's got the notes verbatim, like, and he sort of trusts him. But I love this as a pivotal moment because Woodward is scrutinizing his stuff and his paranoia, just like any editor would. Like it's his moment to actually have a little mm. bit of, you know, editorial, uh, um, uh, sort of an editorial mindset and go like, yes, that conversation changed, but it's not really proof. We need to actually get some clarity here, ask more questions, don't just take face value, etc. And so it's just one of those great things where it's like, okay, this is actually happening. It's here, but I would love to hear you unpack it. Yeah. I mean, first of all, when you assign, I, I, I wasn't precious about which minute it was, but when you assigned me this, I said, oh, that's absolutely wonderful because <laughs> I think this is the moment when this becomes this changes from a, a story about journalism to a to a conspiracy, a paranoia film. And it's what's really important is the previous scene as well. So yes. I don't know who you've got doing the previous previous minute. So it'd be interesting. Well, people to, can oh, listen I'm now. Really it was it, it, is, it is actually the incredible Drew McQueenie. So the great who who was Moriarty on Ain't It Cool. That's how far Drew goes back. But Drew is now sort of an independent freelance film journalist um, and has the formerly dangerous um, newsletter that comes out, which is basically just this wonderful column that is kind of part review, part stream of consciousness, part, you know, 25 years in the biz insider experience. It's just sensational. So he, I, yeah. he and I, I know, I knew in this corridor, it's funny in this corridor, I was like, I'm just happy with anyone getting these few minutes because I just know that they're going to have a field day because it is such a great turning point moment in the yeah, movie. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in the previous scene, then I'm looking forward to, to, to hearing what he's got to say about that because that the phone call with the, with the librarian yes. is just key and I think what happens when Bernstein, obviously he's on the phone and he's taking the notes and then this something has happened on this phone call and you hear it and he takes the notes over to Woodward and at the beginning he gives him the notes and just, I think he wants to let him read them, you know what I mean? Just to see if he can get the same impression just from the notes. But then he gets impatient and is like, <laughs> yeah. you know, there's a contradiction that's happened here. But there, and, and, I think what's interesting is just on a kind of filmic dramatic level, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't know whether this took place in this way, but, um, but the Bernstein could have called Ken, Ken Clausen himself yes, and say, I've just spoken to the librarian. But what this allows is going over to Bernstein and showing him the notes and getting that confirmation, as you say, but then Woodward phones Clausen. Yes. And that gives, the dramatic interplay it allows that to take place so a conversation can happen which gets them to this point which i think is almost the key to the entire movie not saying that this minute is but the, the sentiment behind it is that woodward asks bernstein you know we need something on paper that that says that books were taken out we need evidence we need the we need the, we need something to underpin what we're going to say and and bernstein's the, yeah, that that's fine, but that's not important. What in, what's important is the machinery of conspiracy that's behind 
that. You yes. know what I mean? He just begins to realize it here. And and it's his inclination, which is good. The awakening is you're so right about this minute and this surrounding scene. Because the awakening is Woodward. Like Bernstein seems to like he's that far left radical. He he's sniffing out, you know, mm-hmm. he's he's lived through the Pentagon papers. He's been in the paper for a long time. Like Wood Woodward's been there for nine months. The Pentagon papers are right around you know, they've all happened and he's sniffing out knowing that there's something here. And what's so amazing is and just another like outstanding phone performance. Like speaking as audio files as we are, how good is the librarian's phone call? Like so, oh, oh yes, yeah. well, he did. He did yeah, take yeah, a yeah. lot of books out about you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Senator Kennedy. Yeah, 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 I've, yeah, yeah, I've got it here right now. So, uh, Mr. Woodward, I was wrong, and it's that 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 yeah, inflection, yeah, yeah. that intonation, that drop. You're like, oh my god, this is so perfect. It's exactly what you need. And yeah, here, yeah. that interplay is so great because, like you said, there is a sniff. There's something here, and. I, I go one step further to your sort of pondering is I want to know if the way that they built the dramatic crux of this scene was let Woodward read it and you decide Hoffman yeah. as Bernstein when you're going to interrupt him, when he doesn't get it, yeah, 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 yeah. when he doesn't get it. And that's mm. what's, I just, these guys hear this chemistry and then the call so pure. I'm going to call Ken Clawson. So even in the minute that follows you, so we can play the, we love to play yeah, the game yeah, where yeah. we cheat your minutes, but it's like- I know the he, number. I know the number. Yeah. I know <laughs> the number. When he says, there's that little <laughs> bit of conversation between them always. I know the number. Yeah. <laughs> but I just love, and he calls Clawson and he's like, oh, I just want to find out. And and on Woodward's face at the end of that exchange, it's kind of like, Clawson's going to clear this up. It's not It's not what you think it is. Yeah, and when yeah. he comes back and he but says- then he Yes, yeah, sorry, go, go, go sorry, ahead. Sorry, go ahead. Overlay. Um, yeah, and, and it's interesting whether, because obviously we can't see what's going on, and that's the whole beauty, and I will, I'll come to that, the use of phone calls uh, in a minute. But the it's unclear whether Clawson was in on the first call or not. We don't know that. And whether whether Clawson's position in this is actually honest you know what i mean like he calls the librarian and the librarian lies to clausen or whether clausen is in on the first conversation or you know as as realized what's going on and says no lie to bernstein and then has to lie to woodward as well do you know what i mean so all of that is unclear, never, but I've we ne- have to kind of figure I, i've never thought of who the intercept was i've never thought yeah. of who the intercept was, was. clausen Oh. And it absolutely could be Clawson, in which case it makes it even more of a tantalizing proposition because he's flat out lies, thinks yeah. that they're just going to get away with it. And then when the, someone's got the temerity to come back and say, we just heard this from a White House librarian. Have you got anything to say about it? Look, let me look into it. And then what's the story? No, she denies the conversation ever took place. Like, yeah. like the, the, yeah, shut yeah, the door, yeah. shut the door. That is so interesting, yeah. Dario. That's one of my... And I, and people probably who listen to podcasts that I do are going to get sick of me saying it. That's something I never thought of. And I'm like, now I'm like, it is Clawson. That is a that conversation can now, you know, if it is him, it reeks with a whole different little bit of subterfuge. It's like this guy is trying to, yeah. these people, the machine, like you said, Bernstein's so emphatic. Like if someone can be gotten to in the mm. 10 to 15 second hold that I have when they go to check something, for one of these guys in the White House, 
then the machine is protecting them. Like, what What else is... Like, then the question becomes, what else are they hiding? Like, if they're just hiding what was borrowed yeah. from the library, what the hell else could they possibly be hiding? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's... The, the, the basic structure of the movie is all behind these phone calls. So, in a sense, everybody... There is... In your mind as a, as a, as a film watcher, as an audience member... All you're doing is thinking, oh, there's some some person behind who's knitting all of this together, but it doesn't it doesn't work like that. You know, no. these are networks upon networks, and that's it's because everything's behind a phone, uh, you know, a phone line, and the machinery is behind that. It all becomes kind of like one entity in your brain. Yes, you know, but actually, there is so many machinations that must have been going on, like who's telling who to do what and who's linked linked to who, and it's kind of like. Yeah, it's, it's, that's what makes a conspiracy, I think, because you're looking into the teeth of it and it seems so, it seems so overwhelming, but yeah, it's just this, this one idea of, of a conspiracy being controlled from somewhere. It's, it's that great, it's that great thing of like the system incentivizes the corruption, right? It's that sort mm. of apartheid yeah, yeah, thing yeah. of like the system incentivizes the corruption and you have to treat the system as, is that exactly that? You have to treat it as an entity that people are incentivized to, you know, to participate in, and that's why they do, like, awful shit, or they lie, or they, you know, they kind of use espionage-style tradecraft to keep the truth from journalists who have got every right to do it. And I was just going to say, you know, I wonder if Trump's li- borrowings from the Library of Congress uh, are available, um, but that would be too... <laughs> that would be too... <laughs> Maybe that's too uh, aspirational for the uh, sitting American president to read. Well, you probably couldn't stitch them all together in a coherent line anyway. You know what I mean? It's like, what the hell is he actually saying? I mean, that's his genius. Maybe we'll come to that towards the end. You know, but, oh, yeah, no, amazing. no, no. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's, it, it, I've described Trump thusly. Look, we all have an uncle who drinks. Okay. We all have one. <laughs> And yeah. we all have gone to family functions where said uncle has espoused many a confidently uh, confidently delivered theory, which is just bullshit. And yeah. you enjoy it because there's a communal experience of like, this is fun. I mm. mean, we're all having a good time and uncle so-and-so, he can just, he can tell us all the theories. And when we leave, he's still the mad one. And we're going to go home and live our lives. And I genuinely feel like that about Donald Trump in that he's so stupid and confident, but like he's that guy, but then you realize your uncle runs like a massive company and then you'd be worried. Like if you found out that that uncle was like, if you know that that uncle is like just works in construction and he's just a local bricklayer and that's what he's done his whole life, I'm like, yeah, more power to him. He can have crazy theories and lay really good brick. But if you found out he was a brain surgeon, you'd be like, oh, dear God, get the scalpel away from him. Um, so I think that that's that weird thing of like when it when when power when power that can affect you is indirectly associated with someone who is that crazy and just such a blowhard. It's like oh he's fine, he's harmless because we I, I think there's this weird like drunk uncle familiarity, but him he's yeah. just he's a special kind of like I love science, I get it, I get it. Like what are you talking yeah. about? I mean, it's so- it's interesting. One of the few ways maybe that the film is dated and I, th- I don't mean dated in that you can't watch it because it's you know it just looks so old-fashioned but i think it's that sense that that these guys and the washington post as an institution set off from the premise that they don't believe that the president is corrupt yes 
you know what I mean? It, it, it is this this kind of idea. It's like, oh, there, there must be some kind of uh, infiltration or group of people who are doing things nefariously. And and the top guys, you know, they're they're the, our they're our leaders. They don't know about all of this. Whereas now, you know, the idea that the top guy is not in on it, you would just be completely naive nah. not to think that everybody knows. And it's it's, it's an interesting um, move away from trust of organizations that's taken place i think you know post 70s to to now sort of more over time gradually and in in 70s it was radical it was contending with the 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 morality of that and i think that that's the you, you know you you know this as a scholar is you know there's when you when you are familiar with the the films like when you're familiar with contemporary films, sometimes you lose sight of the films that inspired them. You know, like I'm a big fan of Heat and someone today, I think it's Mm. at Pinland Empire, did this beautiful thread. And if you go back through my Twitter, you can find it or his, of like a whole bunch of scenes, like shots even, that were so beautifully composed in Rafifi, which I think is a 1930s uh, gangster. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and compared them to scenes in Heat and frames in Heat going, these are scenes that Michael Mann is clearly been influenced by and i i i think that that's in this moment and and this time which is i think why both you and i have such an affinity for the cinema of this time it's it's wrestling with the morality of this moment where you watch you literally watch a culture awaken to the possibility that everything that they've been told is bullshit and like that american Mm. dream that aspiration they've got to wrestle with that crumbling of the american dream and sort of there's reactionary weirdness that happens after that and that's reflected from the political stuff which goes to you know there's a great theorist called susan jeffords who calls it the remasculinization of america and it's like the difference between first blood and first blood part two is like first blood (laughs) is about a guy who's messed up who has ptsd who it's this absolutely powerful movie of people of of hometown prejudice small-minded prejudice um butting up against a person who's been basically programmed to be a warrior coming home they tweak that thought in him and then he goes wild and people have to wrangle him and just shows the incongruity between war mindset and life and how weird that must be and you know in the book he kills himself and then the second one is like a vietnam revenge gore porn like that's basically what it is and so i think that that's why i love this corridor is because they're still wrestling with it they're still finding out they're still coming to terms with it and so later Mm. on I think if you if you, it's a great thing to sort of understand how the how that evolved because now we just take for granted that politicians are corrupt. I think we go to the like you said we go to the game. If there's a politician standing on a stage talking to you, at some point you're like they're corrupt. How are they there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you get a Bernie yeah. Sanders and you're like that guy's an outlier. Like mm. the guy's been working in the biz, you know, working as a politician as a public servant for that many years, and he's not corrupt. It's like wow, that's really incredible. You know, yeah. that's that you know, if both of us looking over. But like when I even look at Australian politicians, I'm like, yeah, they're corrupt. They're doing weird stuff. Mm. You know, it's it's not a it's not just an American thing. But yeah, it's it's. I think I wonder when it like completely. T- I I don't know what the example is that it completely turned, but it's like it must be like Lumet's network, where like by the time we hit network, it's accepted that yeah. corporate interference in politics and big business and all that sort of stuff. It's just there. Like it by that time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting in the UK whether where that is. I mean, obviously, I I grew up in the era of Thatcher, and, yes, and I, I don't think 
mirrors stuff happens behind closed doors and always has, you know, right back way before the 70s. But I don't think there was ever ever a sense of attached to, to Thatcher because she just did what she was going to do anyway. You know, she <laughs> yes. was that kind of politician. Maybe it was more... Maybe it was more when, especially for my generation, sort of what happened with Tony Blair, you know, because Tony Blair yes. had this amazing sort of entry into becoming prime minister in 97, where literally I just, I mean, that was the first sort of political moment where I was watching TV with a sort of sense of hope, you know what I mean? It's like Obama was the other one, I think. But, you know, subsequently, obviously, what's happened with Tony Blair, it's, it, that, that sense of cynicism and watching things like TV shows like The Thick of It. Yes. And then the film In the Loop, which, you know, I love those movies. And it's just that that kind of sense of behind the scenes venality and absolute <laughs> disregard for any kind of moral compass whatsoever. And that's just within the people that they hang around with. So they have no interest in the, the electorate at all. So, yeah, maybe. And now, you know, Trump has, to, to coin a cliche, has taken it to a whole new level, obviously. Oh, yeah. It's uh, it's it's very special. It's it's a special time. It's a strange. It's a everything is getting stranger. I think it's when if you had, it's it's the weird and strange thing. And I just looked up. Network is actually 1976. So you've got to think that the actual events that are being portrayed and what we're watching, sort of 1972. Yeah. Nixon's out in 74. They're in the middle of producing this movie. It, it releases January 1st, 76. So I think it's like within that four year period, Lumet. And that maybe the American psyche has just kind of gone, no, everything's corrupt. Like there, there is, there are people behind this that are doing these things. And obviously network is the most sort of overt, surreal, um, in some ways, um, uh, and, and sort of abstract, you know, big white boss man, you know, um, manifestation of evil of, uh, the corporate world. Um, mm. but it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's like that. And, you know, I don't think there's any doubt that Trump's corrupt. It's so, but what's what I think is funny though, and it's it plays into your point. And this conversation, taking you back to this minute, is when you watch people like not wanting to impeach the president because they know that he did something wrong, but they just don't want to impeach him. They're like, yeah, look, I know he yeah, did something yeah, yeah. really wrong, but not nah, on impeach him. It's like that's when you go, wow, this system is broken because they're all like sucking the teat of that system. And self-perpetuating cycle of like the sameness is going to help them continue to coexist. And that's that system. Like they're incentivized to do the bad shit. So of course they're going to keep doing it because they're incentivized to do it. Yeah. And what's interesting as well is whether the, the notion of a film that trades on the mood no, the aura of paranoia yes. still could, can still work in 20, 2020 because, you know, there's that sense of in all of these, in all of um, Pakula's films. And then if you think of the earlier cycle, Frankenheimer's films like The Manchurian mm. Candidate or Seconds. Yes. And then even even later stuff like, you know, Three Days of the Condor, which is which is Redford again and, and, and Sidney Pollack film. And, 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 and sort of stuff like Videodrome or Brian De Palma's Blow, Blowout. And even I mean, them, these are all sort of, like John Carpenter's Them is another great one. It's yeah, like, yeah. No, absolutely. But it's like that idea of of the, the, the sense of the mood of paranoia that somebody is watching you, somebody is listening in, or and there are there are machinations around that which is about withholding information from you or keeping information about you secret. Whereas now, 
we just volunteer everything. <laughs> yes. We volunteer it all. We just give it away. And like, I mean, you know, we're all on social media in some way, shape or form. Most of us are. And I've got the Google home in my house. So they're, they're listening to us right now. Yeah. I've got, Ale- I've got Alexa. And because now I've, my daughter Hazel is three and she doesn't really know how to say Alexa. She says Jalexa. Like, and, okay. but, but Alexa does, and I don't realize that I forget Alexa's there unless I'm actually saying the thing like, Hey Alexa, you know, what time is it? Hey Alexa, play the morning news, you know, whatever. And, uh, and she's like, Jalexa. And then like, it just pops up and I'm like, God damn it. I got to turn this bastard off. They're just hearing everything yeah, yeah, that's yeah, going yeah. on in my house and in my kitchen, in my private time. No, absolutely. Yeah. It's like that, that, that end sequence, uh, in the conversation, Francis Ford Coppola's film with Harry Cole, where he's literally... One of the greatest, maybe in the top 10 movies of all time. Yeah, absolutely. And he's t- he's tearing his own apartment <laughs> completely apart because he's searching for the bugs. And he he's a guy... I mean, it's it's a great movie about sound in cinema because it's about a, 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 bu- a, bu- <laughs> a bugger in, in, the, in the kind of recorder sense of that word, you know? So he is somebody who engages in, in surveillance audio surveillance of conversations and he works in this kind of metal cage which keeps all of the, the interference bugs out, yeah. other interference out yeah but then obviously in in a lot of these conspiracy films it, there is somebody who is who is the listener who becomes listened to and his paranoia i mean that is the ultimate scene of of film paranoia i think him just completely tear and he Absolutely. cannot find anything and it, it's, it's like it's that doesn't there work was, anymore there was antonioni's blow up and yeah. there was, of course, Brian De Palma's Blowout, which a lot of people point to. But the superior film in every conceivable way, in my mind, is The Conversation. And yeah. very recently, I was really lucky. A couple of already guests on the show, frequent guests on One Heat Minute Productions, Garth Franklin, the editor of Dark Horizons, and Stu Coote from The Cinephiles. The three of us went to a little tiny repertory theatre in Sydney. It's called Our Golden Age. It's a little golden age, tiny little old theatre. Um, and they were playing The Conversation. And so he went along and saw it and it's only in the last couple of months. And I think it was just like this perfect compliment to me doing this film and embarking on this project. And I noticed something for the first time, Darren, and I want you to look for it. And I want all the listeners to look for it. I don't care if you pause it right now. There's a scene at a audio surveillance convention where in the background of a scene behind Harry, someone walks behind him carrying a saxophone. (laughs) I've never noticed it. I've watched the movie right. 40 times, I think. And I and having it on the big screen splayed out there, watching it in such a like a nebulous, curious way because I was just so appreciative to be in a dark room with this movie on a big screen because it's just such a mesmerizing, you know, sensory experience. And I caught this thing and I'm just like, what I now love about that final scene is he's torn the whole apartment down, but he will not tear yeah. apart his... His saxophone, and the saxophone may still be the tool that he's being listened to. So, you know, I was even thinking about it the other day. I was like, I'm going to delete Facebook. I'm going to delete Instagram. I'm just staying on Twitter (laughs) because my little little comfortable place on Twitter is fine. And then you just brought up the Google Homes or Alexis, and I'm like, God damn it. I'm still going to tear the whole house apart, and that's still going to be sitting there recording everything I say. Yeah, I mean, and it it is that switch, isn't it, to from from analog to digital and you know, the conversation is just so good with the whole analog technology. And I think it relates back to the, to this scene and the, and, and the whole of the film in terms of the use of the, the use of the phone in, in, in terms of setting up that, 
that unseen, that disembodied voice. I mean, I've just done an episode of The Cinematologist on the voice in cinema and how it's used. And this is this is this concept of acousmetra, which literally means the disembodied voice. Yes. And if you look at so many films that use an off-screen voice or a, vo- a voice that's yet to be bodied, yes. it's often used for very specific purposes around power and around uncertainty because it is the other. Where, where does that voice belong to? Where do you place it? And it, it makes your imagination click over about what that voice represents because you can't attach it to a body. Yeah, and, and what's so great is they play that incredible technique, a cosmetra, as you said it. I hope I pronounced it right. They play yeah, that incredible right. technique so beautifully in All the President's Men, mm. and they want you to feel like it's passe. They want you to feel yeah. like the disembodied voices on the other end of the phone are, you know, inconsequential. Oh, it's just normal people. Yeah. But it's this yeah. moment that when it flips, you're like, oh, no, it is that menacing thing. And then every other phone call that we see in the film has a different mood. It's like once one thing happens in this film, the mood shifts the conversation changes, the the intensity of the dialogue changes, and it's just like once that big bit of information, then it's like okay, and it's similar yeah. to that. They're walking around, they're you know you know walking uncomfortably through a steamy summer in Washington, pounding pavement, knocking on doors. It's hot, like something I didn't know. Maybe you you know, but I wasn't familiar. Is like Washington gets quite steamy in the summer. It's hot, mm. so they're walking around in their short sleeves because it's so damn hot. But there's that moment where they go back to that woman's house a second time and she goes, please go away. They can see. (laughs) And as soon as they do that, it changes the fact that they've gone to see this, you know, 50, 100 people in this creep list. Um, And so, yeah, it's just that that's such a such a fascinating thing. Pecula Mm. loves that. He loves that technique, though. He loves a a disembodied voice on a phone. He loves it. Yeah. No, for sure. And also, I mean, you've got to credit Robert Redford for just some brilliant phone under the shoulder acting oh, there. I great. mean, he just does the does that conversation like with the with the phone. That's an old school landline thing because nobody's got landlines anymore. No you can't put landlines. a mobile phone under your shoulder. It's just like <laughs> a a little interaction between technology and the body that just doesn't occur, and he does it so beautifully. You know, it's amazing. And it used to make you tired. Like, if yeah. you were ever a person, if you were talking to a friend from overseas or whatever, like, you you know, long distance or, you know, a girlfriend in high school, you used to get tired. You're like, oh, I'm tired. Like, I don't want to hold my neck like this. All right, I got to go. My head's hurting. All right, see ya. Like, it was that thing you could get off the phone. Whereas now, like, the luxury of, you know, nice headphones and a good speaker on your, you know, your, your, your headphones, you can just talk for hours. You're just walking around, go for an hour long walk, have a good old chat. <laughs> it's very funny. It's very funny. Yeah, it's, it's interesting as well. I was just it, just on the um, the American politics. Just again, folk, a, a little aside, but you know, I was reading reports that the that before the the Super Tuesday elections occurred, there was phone calls made from Obama to all the other candidates, telling them to drop out and support Joe Biden because they were so so. You know what I mean? It's like that that sense of what's going on. And you can imagine those phone calls as piece, little pieces of history. If you could, if you could hear those, that's all, all would, the president's men. all over. I would love to hear those. I mean, that's, <laughs> you know, it's, it's actually funny, you know, you, you speak of, I don't know whether you've got the finger on the pulse or something, but like we're outsiders in Australia. So you, you, you and in England, so you, you the American 
political machine is so, I think, almost perversely covered from our countries in a way because it's so mm. alien. Because, you know, I, I, and I don't know the machinations there and Dario can clear it up, but like in Australia, when you run an election, you get a two-week period like to fund that campaign. There are no public yeah. donations. You can you yeah. can have volunteers that help you, but there you know the government is allowed and both governments have budgets to do their ads. They do ads, you know, television ads, you know, social media ads, etc. But it is a very like very comparatively small and punchy streamlined campaign. And there's occasionally a couple of tiers where you'll do like local government, sorry, state government rather, and in the state government election you vote for your local representatives. That's how you ladder up. You vote for your local rep and they are part of one of our major political parties and it ladders up to a political party that then has power mm. in that state and, and then similarly we do the same thing for national but it's so fast the 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 american cycle is they all of the people on the one political party who really should form across a spectrum of like your political ideology like some more extreme to the left if you're on the left and then some towards the middle and then similarly if it's on the right it's there's sort of more centrist candidates and there's crazy far riders mm. and and they pit all these people together to fight for months yeah. <laughs> like the, and so we yeah, we, yeah, we yeah. watch externally with this like perverse like what the hell is going on um but the daily the the new york times very very well produced and insanely popular podcast um, I listened to a show of theirs like maybe a week ago that was talking in depth about predictions of, you know, the Super Tuesday, the Super Tuesday was the turning point for Biden and that he'd been hitting the ground hard to canvas support for the, in the black community and, and working through there and, you know, especially, you know, um, a, a conservative, uh, you know, although left-leaning, but conservative black voters like churchgoers, et cetera, and getting, and getting all that and drumming up their support. And they're like, yeah, if it's successful, he'll basically put himself as the front runner. And then like a week later, yeah. they were right. I'm like, man, this is journalists yeah, yeah, yeah. who've got their fingers on the pulse. Like they're not just looking at what all the central tracking is. They're understanding the country exists, you know, with a yeah. massive center um, of influential votes and you know they're going to come to bear on this particular day it's really crazy yeah i mean they're, they're essentially non-stop campaigning in america aren't they i mean over here i think it's six weeks and there are yeah there are incredible incredibly stringent rooms about about finance financing of campaigns i mean i think we had somebody spent over a hundred thousand pounds more than the budget and it was on the you know it was on the front pages for a week it's like eruption in politics it's like jesus christ you want to go over to america it's just the wild west over there <laughs> and, yeah, and, and speaking of this and the great the great um slow burn podcast with leon nafak you know they they talk about like nixon going you need a million dollars to pay off the watergate burglars i can get you a million dollars like a million 1972 dollars to pay yeah, people crazy, off is a lot of money it's a lot mm -hmm. Oh God, I I think um you know you as a you as a lecturer and someone who's looking for texts that are so rich that you can just consume them over and over again. I've just got this pause on the final frame as we're leading now into the twenty ninth minute, and man, just every damn thing I love about the frame of this. The the extras are so phenomenal. The offices mm. are adorned with different styles of pictures and maps. The desk plates, the collapsing 
books and phone books and, you know, almanacs of American politics and, you know, the last budget. Man, this film is just so fastidiously created that every frame that I pause myself on, I'm like, man, this is a piece of, you know, for us to get slightly highfalutin, some detailed mise-en-scene that you can just really, like, chew on um, and, you know, ponder, like, oh, what's that guy working on over there? What what desk does he work for? Is he local? Is he national? So much great stuff in this frame, so much great stuff that's happening in this scene. Yeah, it's it's an interesting film because it doesn't it's not overtly stylized in the same way as other conspiracy films are. I mean, if you could compare to um, the the Parallax View, for example, yeah, ch- which and has same got director, very ch- chalk and yeah, cheese. yeah, exactly, chalk same and director, cheese. very very dark, shadowy, almost noirish, using that sense of you know, there's people round corners at any given moment to give you that 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 real sort of tension throughout like somebody's being chased whereas whereas here that there is that he is going for a sense of realism and when you're in the newspaper office it's just bathed in this in this light obviously and and it's almost as if he's saying you know this is where everything is transparent and where there's clarity and there's only really the the the, the deep throat scenes where it, it it's shadowy for obvious reasons and and it and because it's so obvious it demarcates it from the rest of the film but then you get obviously the the, the aerial shots and the ones that start down by them, and, and especially when they're looking in the library and, and, library and, it, and it moves up. Yeah, yeah and, and it's whether that that is both simultaneously a kind of surveillance shot and it's also a needle in a haystack shot. Yes, and, and so the it, needle in the haystack shot, it's, it's both in my mind. And yeah. the needle in the haystack shot that still gets me to this day is just watching, and you talk about a disembodied voice, it's actually a disembodied voice scene in this film, but you know who the who the voice belongs to because it's both wooden burn scene mm-hmm. that are talking in the voiceover. It's that city. They're saying names yeah. on this Crete list and the camera starts pulling back to show you Washington, which is just this humming city. Things are thriving, people are driving, and it's just like these guys are up against not only the machine of politics, they're up against the machine Mm. of society, like people just getting the hell on with their lives. And I think that that's a a great yardstick for this movie. It's like people... You know, and and it's these little conversations that you could totally ignore, but these guys have to continue to battle through, and they they become like huge, significant battles and and micro breakthroughs that ultimately lead to like this macro sort of tsunami esque, you know, <laughs> wave yeah. that delivers exactly what is going to come at the end of this. Yeah, and when I was when I was writing about this years ago, and the the one book that really sort of stuck with me. Was, an academic book was called the geopolitical aesthetic. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. It's no. by a guy called Fred. It's by a guy called Frederick Jameson. And it's, it's absolutely, you know, a kind of very densely written, obtuse, difficult to understand academic book. But he, he sort of goes into absolute detail about all these conspiracy films as a sort of totality of it, of conspiracy in the latter half of the 20th century. He's just basically sort of talks about it as this is the, this is the world that we exist in, in the fact that we can't, we, we, we see it there, but we can't understand its dimensions. And he used this, this term cognitive mapping. And what cognitive mapping is, it's this, um, it's the way that we're, like when we go to the, the shops or the supermarket or we go to work, we don't think about where it is. We just go there because we've got a sense of where it is in the totality of our lives. So yes. it works on a kind of spatial level, but it works on a psychological level. And what he argues about conspiracy films is 
that they give us a little bit of a cognitive map of what the what our position is in the totality of the world and all the global politics that is going on. It gives us a little entryway into that because it, it explains the stuff and takes us through the labyrinths and and gives us the the elements of the story that relate to certain people around the conspiracy. But at the end of the day, that it never really maps out the no. the entirety of the conspiracy. Uh, it I, never I, can. I think, but you know, I think that cognitive mapping. And and sorry, can you repeat his name for me? What was his name? Yeah, the, the guy's name's Frederick Jameson. So He's Frederick Jameson, I think, stumbled on something that gamers exploit, which is that mm. whole cognitive mapping exercises. There's something that's so infuriating and also tantalizing when you're playing a game. And what happens yeah. is you, you zoom out on your map, you go to your options button and you hit it, and there it is. You've done a tiny proportion of the map that you've opened up and the rest of it is completely opaque. Like It's like a, cl- yeah. a dark cloud sitting over it and it's like... It's, it's that conspiratorial, I must know what is underneath. And then sometimes you cut big sways through it and you get it and you realize that there are still nooks and crannies you haven't explored. And I think that that's just like that cognitive mapping thing is like such a great encapsulation of what it is. Because yeah. as you do it, like you said, it's it, it becomes a foundational premise. If someone can be gotten and these phones, mm. on, the people on the phones are no longer just humans doing good, but potentially participants in a machine that is designed to be obtuse, then it's like, well, this is a foundational moment. You know... Yeah, and he... he sorry, go ahead. Uh, my thing I was going to say is, I have to just say, we might wrap up quickly, shortly. Sure. And, but I'm going to demand that you come back on the show in the nicest possible <laughs> sure. way because I feel like I hijacked you and I potentially going down some serious, beautiful intellectual rabbit holes of paranoia because of just the state of the world that we're in. So I'm going to yeah. I'm going to say you've got a permanent invite to come back, Dario, anytime. Thank you. Appreciate um, it. And um, guys, you simply must, you know. I think we asked for a little patch of some, a couple of bucks to chuck at us. There is an incredible newsletter and the cinematologist podcast that you can download. There's free elements. There's um, a whole bu- a whole stack of, um, you know, worth your money and time investments. And I just want to say you have to do that. I will link it all in the descriptions and on our page. But Dario, I just want to say it's a pleasure talking to you, man. And so I want to do this again. We're, and next time I will let you pick your minute um, so you can find something really, <laughs> really juicy. Right. Um, but I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me. Before we go down more rabbit holes, I think I need a whole other. We need a whole other podcast to talk about what what is coming up next. Sure, it's been my pleasure to to come back on again. I just want to say it's a I really admire enjoy all of the the productions that you've done and uh, look out for the, there's actually an academic piece on film podcasting that's coming out in the summer that I've written and you're you're mentioned in that so wow. I'll, I'll send that along to you. Wow. That is really nice, and I appreciate that. I, I can't wait to read it. Thank you so much. And look, there is a cinematologist podcast simmering with myself on there. Yeah, it's um, that should that actually should be already out. I don't know what by, by, by the, the time, time it, by the time it, this comes out, depending on the past out. and the future, and whenever you listen to this podcast, finally there might be an episode with me and and Dario and I went really long about. The, not only the process of podcasting but also just the the examination technique that I think that anyone who's listening to this show might just be able to sort of chew on and th- sort of think about some of the intellectual stuff the juices that are, are flowing as we're tackling these things segment by segment but it's a pleasure to talk to you my friend thank you so much for being a part of this show um, and and likely in the future and uh, and may when you all listen to this 
there still is a future. There still is podcasts about movies a minute at a time. Um, uh, but we'll be back and talk to you soon. Take care. Stay safe. You too, my friend. Thank you. A huge thank you to my great guest, Dario Linares there. If you want to follow Dario on Twitter, it is at Dario double L. So it's double L actually written out D O U B L E L for Larry. Um, Go to any of the great podcast apps that are used and search The Cinematologist for his excellent podcast. I'm so lucky to be on the 99th episode of The Cinematologist podcast, which is up right now for you to listen to. So if you have listened to this and you want to dive in, please go there right now. Absolutely brilliant. And all the back catalog of The Great Cinematologist podcasts are there and around. So hugely grateful for Dario, for Neil, uh, and and it's an honor to be on their show. And now to be featured in an article in the upcoming summer. Really exciting times. This has been another One Heat Minute production. Thank you so much for listening along. We have an amazing array of shows. One Heat Minute, obviously. The last 12 minutes of the Mohicans. Increment Vice. Josie and the Podcats. All the President's Minutes, which you're listening to today. And our daily podcast, Con Tan Gen, which is a tight 10, talking to a whole stack of folks in isolation, in quarantine, sort of accounting for in this community everything that's going down. Listen along to that daily. We're going to have great shows coming up for you, some unannounced stuff, which we are going to announce to tease for the future. But if you want to support us, we do have a Patreon, and you can find links to that on oneheatminute.com. If you want to go to our site, oneheatminute.com or incrementvice.com, you can find out more about the shows. And if you want to go to graffitiwithpunctuation.com, you can read about Contention and our upcoming six-part limited series, Josie and the Podcasts. Until next time, thank you so much. Subscribe, rate, review, share. Thanks so much for listening. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.